Hello and welcome to As We Wait, an in-depth verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible. Join pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, as he continues the study through the Old Testament book of Judges. This is the conclusion of a three-part study of Judges, Chapter 3. You have a few moments, so why don't you grab your Bibles and follow along. Please turn to Judges, Chapter 3. And then we get to verse 11, and it says, And the land had rest 40 years. That one battle, that one confrontation, they'd been under subjugation for eight years. Now they're at rest for 40 years. But then we read those words, And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Ominous words because of what we read in verse 12. It says, And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because he had done evil in the sight of the Lord. So as soon as Othniel is dead, the children of Israel basically went right back to their old ways, right back to what I would refer to as their natural ways. You see, apart from God, that's what we do. Apart from the Holy Spirit living in us, we do what's natural to us. So many times I've been asked by people, why did this person do that or that person do that, whatever, you know, and, and speaking of non-believers, they go, well, you're looking at a non-believer doing what non-believers do. There's no restraint. There's no respect for God. There's no fear of God. What would restrain them from doing that except for the law and those kinds of things? And when people aren't bound by that, non-believers do what non-believers do, and that's they sin. <laughs> they just do all kinds of crazy stuff. But that's not the case. And it's the case for us when we don't have Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Apart from God, that's what we do because we're either going to be under control of the Spirit or we're going to be under control of the flesh. Isaiah tells us in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. I mean, we just wander. Jeremiah the prophet tells us in Jeremiah 10:23, O Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walks to direct his steps. Now, no man likes to hear that. Most of us, and I think some of the younger people in this room can relate, don't you look forward to turning 18? Or first you look forward to turning 16 so you can drive, okay? And then you look forward to turning 18 so you can drive wherever you want, okay? You think. <laughs> you forget that you've got to pay for gas and insurance and stuff. But that comes when you're about 19 when you figure that out. But uh, we all want to call the shots. Well, you know, the, the architect, the master of our destiny. That's not how it always works out. And we learn that, Lord, you're so much smarter than I am. Lord, I've messed up my life. Lord, I called the shots for quite a while, actually. I did for my life. Where did it land me? <laughs> it landed me in a place of desperation, a place of realizing I'm a fool, and crying out to God and asking him to take over. So it's not in man to direct his own steps. I've always been interested, an admirer, I should say, of military aircraft. When I was a kid, I built model airplanes and all kinds of stuff. And you know, In World War I, if you look at the aircraft of that day, you know, the biplanes, the soft with camels, that kind of stuff, very simple, very kind of rudimentary. You know, they had a, a throttle and a stick and some levers for things, and the, the rudder in the back and all that stuff, flaps and drunk. You know, half an hour of instruction, and those guys were in the cockpit flying that thing around. Pretty simple. And then you get to World War II, 
and some pretty cool-looking airplanes, you know, P-51 Mustangs and P-38s and stuff. But they were faster, they were bigger, and they had a lot more guns. Way cool. But now you look at what they've got today, F-16s, F-18s, stealth fighters, all that kind of junk. But they've gotten more and more sophisticated with their avionics and all that stuff. And you know that a pilot can't fly the plane by himself anymore. There's several onboard computers that, because it's too sophisticated, things have to happen too fast. So you've got these computers in there that are helping the plane fly. And without the computers operating in those jets, they would fall out of the sky like a rock. And the analogy I want to draw is that without the Holy Spirit, our operating system working in us, we will fall from the sky like a rock as well. We'll hit the ground every time. We need the Holy Spirit working in us and working through us. And that's the direction that we need in our lives. And so without that third part of our triunity working in us, you know, we're body, soul, and spirit. And unless we're born again of the Spirit, we're going to do the same thing that the world does. But notice in these passages here that the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab. That always bothers me when the Lord turns from strengthening his people <laughs> to strengthening the enemies of his people. That means that something bad is about to happen. God always does that with a purpose, and that's to draw the next generation or that generation to repentance. Whenever God raises up an opposing force in our lives, we should ask, God, why are you doing that? <laughs> what am I supposed to learn from this? And so often we're prone to despising the instrument that God would use. And it's a very difficult lesson for me to learn not to despise the instrument that God would use in my life to correct me, to chasten me, to train me. And when I start to go through trials or things aren't going my way, I sometimes I've got to step back and go, God, what are you trying to teach me? What are you trying to show me? And here we see that God is raising up, strengthening Eglon, the king of Moab, because he wants to do something good for his children. It'll be painful, it'll be difficult, but ultimately he's using it for their good and for our good when he does it. Because God is good. His motives are always love for us. Then we look at verses 13 and 14. And it says, And he gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek. And these are traditional perennial enemies of Israel. And went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees, which is the city of Jericho. So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So the Lord raises up Ammon and Amalek. They're victorious over the Israelites. They take Jericho. Now they're oppressed by Eglon, the king of Moab. Notice that the first time this happened, it was for eight years. This is the second time now, and it's for 18 years. You ever have that situation with your kids where you deal with something and maybe you correct them or whatever, and then they do the very same thing, like turn around 10 minutes later, an hour later, whatever, do the exact same thing? You say, well, hang on, that's just one swap. No, no. With my kids, well, if one didn't do the trick, I guess a couple more might help. And so that's kind of the, the tactics that the Lord is using at this point. But you think about God raising up the king, Eglon, the king of Moab. In Psalm 75, verses 6 and 7, the psalmist tells us, For promotion cometh neither from the east nor from the west nor from the south. But God is the judge. He puts down one and he sets up another. You know, when we see people rise to prominence or political power or different things, people get promoted at work, however that works, and there's times when you, you kind of look and go, wow, how did that happen? And we have to understand that promotion comes from the Lord. And we can complain about, as an example, our, maybe our political leaders or different things like that. But maybe God raised that person up to teach us a lesson somehow. Maybe God raised that person up to cause us to cry out to him, to look for deliverance. And, and to get serious about walking with him and, and to remember, to remind us that, hey, we haven't been obedient to what he's called us to do. And so oftentimes, 
I'm sure we want to complain about different things, but God wants to use that in our lives so that we'll call out to him and we'll learn the lessons that he's actually teaching the nation of Israel. Then we get to verses 15 and 16. It says, But the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, and the Lord raised them up a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Gera, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, king of Moab. But Ehud made him a dagger which had two edges of a cubit's length, and he did gird it under his raiment upon his right thigh. And he brought the present unto Eglon, king of Moab. And Eglon was a very fat man. Now, again, the children of Israel cried out to God, and, and God again raised up a deliverer, Ehud. Ehud's name means power or unity. And this time the deliverer is raised up from among the tribe of Benjamin before the deliverer is raised up from the tribe of Judah. And it says that he's a left-handed man. Now, being left-handed, particularly in that culture, was considered being weak. And when they say he was a left-handed man, it's funny. He comes from the tribe of Benjamin, but the name Benjamin means son of my right hand, son of my power. Okay, So Ehud being a left-handed man is kind of going, eh, the weakling. Okay, Now, I don't like that because I'm left-handed. So I'm going to tell you that there were, as we go through this book, the tribe of Benjamin was famous for producing fierce warriors that were all left-handed. But uh, my analogy will still fall apart a little bit because uh, basically it's a sign of weakness. Interesting thing, too, that the words that are used to describe that he was a, a left-handed man can also be translated legitimately that he was handicapped with his right hand, like his, his right hand was shriveled up, and so he had to be left-handed. And so that's kind of interesting when you think about it, though, because... They're sending in basically a guy with a shriveled right hand, and so he has to be left-handed. And I like this because it's a symbol of weakness or disability. Who does God use? In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, Paul tells us, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. God loves to take the disabled, the broken, the weak, the foolish, and use them to be glorified. And I don't know, maybe Ehud was like a total stud. But more than likely, he was probably a weakling, and God likes to take guys like that so that God will get the glory when the battle's over, so that God will get the glory for the great things that he has done versus having to share credit or or glory with man. Anyway, moving on. Then we get to Eglon. (laughs) Eglon, is, um, he has a distinction. He's the only man in the Bible that God says was very fat. He's the Bible fat man. Eglon means calf-like. And so his parents must have thought he was going to be like a real bull or something when he got older. Personally, a very fat man. I'm picturing Jabba the Hutt. You know, I'm thinking, okay, we have a biblical character of Jabba the Hutt there. But it says that Ehud, basically he's a man with a plan. He's going to take this dagger. It's an 18-inch long, you know, roughly a cubit's length. It's a double-edged sword, if you will. And, you know, getting ahead of things a little bit, it is interesting that the nation is going to be delivered with the use of a double-edged sword. And this is always analogous to the Word of God. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the Word of God is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Whenever you read about somebody doing something and they use those words like it's a double-edged sword, it always comes back seemingly to the word of God. Then we get to verse 18. And when he had made an end to offer the present, he sent away the people that bore the present, but he himself turned again from the quarries that were by Gilgal 
and said, I have a secret errand unto thee, O king, who said, Keep silence. And all that stood by him went out from him. And Ehud came unto him, and he was sitting in a summer parlor, which he had for himself alone. And Ehud said, I have a message from God unto thee. And he rose to his feet, and Ehud put forth his left hand and took the dagger from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the haft, or the the guard, also went in after the blade, and the fat closed upon the blade so that he could not draw the dagger out of his belly, and the dirt came out. See, kids always like this one. It's like, yeah, man, he stuck with the sword so he couldn't get it out. He swallowed him up. It's kind of an interesting, uh, kind of a gross story a little bit. But under the guise of presenting a gift, and see, they're being oppressed by Ehud, so they've got to pay tribute. And tribute came in the form of money, like gold and silver, and so the guys had to bear that. Or sometimes it's exotic materials of different kinds, you know, commodities and so forth. And so as the story says here, they made an end to offer the present, so they brought all the stuff. And then it says he himself turned again from the quarries. Now, again, the quarries are basically uh, stone statues of uh, the male sex organ, and they did all kinds of weird sexual rituals and things. And so Eglon has his summer palace, if you will, situated in such a way where he can see that. So it's kind of like looking at pornography through your window kind of a deal. And it says here that Ehud turned again from the quarries. Now, looking at verse 19, the quarries were in Gilgal. This is so sad because remember the, when the children of Israel entered the promised land across the river Jordan? Where did they camp? The first place they camped was Gilgal. They were like about a mile and a half or two miles from Jericho. And so they camped at Gilgal. It was a place of victory. They recommitted their lives to the Lord there. All the men were circumcised there. They celebrated the first Passover there, like in 40 years. And so Gilgal is a place of blessing. It's a place of victory. But as the enemy has taken over, what's he done? He's making it into a perverted place of worship to pagan gods. And it's no longer a place of victory for the children of Israel. It's a place of debauchery. And I can just imagine Ehud. You know, he's got this plan. He's going to stab the fat guy. And he gets in there, and, and maybe he doesn't do it. for I don't know. He could have turned his back to the view of what he had there in that same room. Or he could have left with the guys that bore the present. But he gets to Gilgal, and he sees the groves. He goes, and he remembers, that's why I came to kill this guy, because he's doing these things. And he turns around. One way or the other, he gets in there and goes, King, i got a secret errand for you. And, I mean, who doesn't want to hear a secret, right? I mean, especially if you're a fat guy. And so he goes, okay, bring it on, man. And he gets everybody else out of the room. And then Ehud goes, hey, I got a word from the Lord for you. <laughs> He's got a sharp point. <laughs> he didn't say that part. And when he says, I've got a word from the Lord for you, here, the word of God, thus saith the Lord. And he pulls the dagger out, and he shoves it into his stomach. I sense some adrenaline here, because he's pushing hard enough to where he gets it all the way in and can't get it out. And it goes over the hilt of the sword, the fat closes over it. And not wanting to overly spiritualize this, but think about this for a minute. It's a double-edged sword. It's being poked in, and then it says the dirt came out. When God's word enters into our life, when we're pricked, stabbed, or slashed with God's word, the dirt begins to come out of our lives as well because God's word has a purifying effect. God's word has a cleansing effect. And it's an interesting thing that as the word of God is applied to our lives, not just on a one-time basis, But for the rest of our lives, for the rest of our our walk with the Lord on this planet, the dirt will always be coming out. Little by little, more by more, whatever it's going to be, it's a purifying effect. And it's very much like, you know, we talk about the refiner's fire, that the dross will always be coming to the surface and being scraped off. It's a continual process in our lives. And so we see that here. 
And again, the word of God having that purifying effect in our lives as well. Then we get to verse 23. Then Ehud went forth through the porch and shut the doors of the parlor upon him and locked them. And when he was gone out, his servants came. And when they saw that, behold, the doors of the parlor were locked. They said, surely he covers his feet. Basically, he's using the restroom. That's why he's locked the door. Verse 25, and they tarried till they were ashamed. And behold, he opened not the doors of the parlor. Therefore, they took a key and opened them. And behold, their Lord was fallen down dead on the earth. And Ehud escaped while they tarried and passed beyond the quarries and escaped unto Sirath. Now, Gilgal and Sirath are separated by a pretty good geographical distance. It's all the way to the mountains of Ephraim. And so basically, he locks the doors and sneaks out the window or whatever he does. And he gets pretty far away before the fat guy is discovered. And then they realize that their king is dead. And then we get to verse 27. And it came to pass when he was come that he blew a trumpet in the mountain of Ephraim, and the children of Israel went down with him from the mount, and he went before them. And he said unto them, Follow after me, for the Lord hath delivered your enemies the Moabites into your hand. And they went down after him and took the fords of Jordan towards Moab and suffered not a man to pass over. And they slew of Moab at that time about 10,000 men, all lusty and all men of valor, and there escaped not a man. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest fourscore or 80 years. So blowing the trumpet, that goes back to the book of Exodus when they fashioned two silver trumpets, and they were for the gathering of the nation together to worship God, and they were also for the calling together of the men to go out to war. And so Ehud gets back, he knows that Eglon is dead, and he blows the trumpets together. The men goes, hey, follow me. The Lord has delivered the enemy into our hand. And it's an awesome thing as they go out and they secure that victory. And as they go, it says that they killed 10,000 men. And it uses that word lusty men. And what it means is stout men, capable men, able-bodied men of valor. And so it's describing it wasn't a bunch of wimps that they knocked over. And then it said that they took the fords of Jordan. The Jordan River back in those days before it was being used for agricultural use as it is throughout Israel now, was a much bigger river. And so you couldn't just cross it anywhere you wanted to. And so the fords of the Jordan was one of those shallow parts where you could actually cross the Jordan when it wasn't the spring runoff from the, the winter snow. Basically, it was a choking point. They just waited there at the fords, and when the, as the Moabites came through, they slaughtered them, and then they had the victory over the nation. And so it says they killed 10,000 men. And then Moab was subdued. They had rest for 80 years. It's so cool that they could have a stint like that compared to some of the other ones that are much shorter. But then we get to verse 31, the last verse, and it says, And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines 600 men with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel, almost like a footnote. And it's interesting, uh, this particular episode, they don't describe the whole process of the nation of Israel doing evil before the Lord and worshiping other gods and and crying out and all that stuff. It just lists the next judge. And um, Shamgar, anybody want to name their kid Shamgar? But his name is really cool. It means sword. And so we don't know much about anything except he killed 600 Philistines with an ox goad. But Shamgar, you know, meaning sword, again, Paul speaks of spiritual weapons in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17. It says, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And an ox goad is simply basically a sharpened stick. Back in those days, they would have an ox pulling a plow or whatever in a field. And when it slowed down or stopped, there would be somebody behind it with a sharp stick. And usually the stick was about six or eight feet long because when you poke the ox, they would kick back. 
and trying to get whoever was doing it to him. And so it was usually a nice long stick. But the bottom line is it's just a pointy stick. And he kills 600 Philistines with it. Now, you know, God gave him a, an M60 machine gun and he killed 600 Philistines. Okay, I can see that. You know, God gave him an atom bomb and he killed 600 Philistines. I can see that. But he kills 600 guys with a sharp stick. I mean, it's not about the weapon and it's not even about the man. It's about God. I don't think they had feather dusters back then, but it would have been kind of funny. And God gave him a feather duster and he slew 8,000 men. You know, I mean, when God says you're going to go out and get some guys, later on we're going to read that one guy gets a jawbone of a donkey and kills a thousand men, that kind of stuff. The bottom line is it's all about God. And just to wrap this up and bring some continuity to the whole thing, we've had three different stories now, the last one being obviously very short, three different descriptions of the nation of Israel being delivered from those that oppressed them. The first one was, the deliverer was Othniel. His name means the strength of God. And that the Spirit of God came upon him. The second guy was Ehud. And his name means the power of God. What did he make? What did he use? He used a double-edged sword, the Word of God. Then we've got Shamgar. His name means sword. And so the deliverance came through the strength of God, the Spirit of God, and through the Word of God. And I would ask you today, how are we going to be delivered? Isn't it going to be through the strength of God? It's going to be through the power of God? And it's going to be through the word of God? And that's how deliverance comes to all of us. The last reference I want to share with you is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, if you turn there for just a moment. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Because everything always comes back to the word of God. It always comes full circle, and it always comes back to how we handle the Word of God. Here Peter writes in Second Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Now, multiplied is not the same as adding and subtracting. Multiplied is like, an, I want you to be blessed in an exponential kind of way. How? Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, according as his divine power. Now, you read divine power as the Holy Spirit. So, how are we through the knowledge of God and the fullness of God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, who has given us all things. Okay? That means nothing's left out. All things that pertain to life and godliness. Again, how? Through the knowledge of him who has called us to virtue and glory. The knowledge of him. How are we going to learn more about Jesus? It's become through his word. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It's all going to happen, our understanding of God and our deliverance from evil through the strength of God, the spirit of God, and the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. It's all about him, and it's all about his word. If you're here this morning and you're being oppressed if you're here this morning and you feel like you're in bondage, if you're here this morning and, and you're a slave to sin, Jesus wants to receive you. Jesus wants to deliver you. He wants you to know, to experience the strength of God and the Spirit of God and the fruit of the Word of God working in each of our lives. And if that's you, I encourage you, don't leave this place defeated today. Don't leave this place downcast Leave a victor in Christ Jesus, victorious in Christ Jesus, because he's already done the work, and he wants you to have that victory. He wants you to be delivered.
because he's our great deliverer. What an awesome God we serve. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your love, for your kindness, Lord, your faithfulness. And we ask, Lord, that by the power of your Spirit, that, Lord, you would fill us up, fill us afresh, Lord, baptize us afresh, and help us to walk in your ways, to do those things that are pleasing in your sight. We love you, Lord, and we worship you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, that's all the time we have for now. You've just been listening to pastor and teacher Mike Scanlon of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California, teaching the conclusion of a three-part in-depth study of Judges chapter 3. Please join us again next time as we continue our study through the book of Judges and through the entire Bible. As We Wait is an outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Susanville, California. We pray that you are blessed and we'd like to invite you to join us in person. Calvary Chapel meets at 450 Richmond Road on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30. Our Wednesday evening service begins at 7 and communion is celebrated the first Sunday of each month at 6 p.m. To get the entire study on CD, please call the church office at 530-257-4833. And if you've made a profession of faith and would like more information on what it is to walk with Jesus or want to know how to grow in your faith, we would love to hear from you. You can write to us at P.O. Box 1316, Susanville, California, 96130. All our services are streamed live on the web at www.ccsusanville.com. Until next time, may the Lord richly bless you.